Hello and welcome to Calm Versations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is returning guest Helen Joyce, editor of the esteemed publication The Economist magazine and author of Trans When Ideology Meets Reality. This is a nonfiction book that covers her research into the transgender ideology and its impact on women and society in general. This is our third conversation, and so if you want to know the origin of our rapport, you can go ahead and look at the previous two conversations that are linked down in the description. Trans is going to be released in the United States on September 7th, and I do have to say that it is a very well-put-together book, and while we do, in this conversation, cover the issues of the ideology that we've both been investigating for a few years now, we also talk about the composition of of such a composition, because I am somebody who likes to dabble in composing long forms of writing, and so I was trying to glean more information about her style and how she produces such tight substance. So, without further ado, here is Helen Joyce. Hello. Dame Joyce. How's everything? Yeah. Good. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, fine, fine. How's that? Uh, that looks good, I think. Do you feel successful? <laughs> what a funny question. Um, I feel oddly flat, funnily. Do you not have that sort of thing where you've been working up to something for ages and it was such, it was so great, it was great hitting the bestseller list and so on, and then afterwards you're like, oh... Okay, that's been a big strain. That's been 18 months mm. of serious effort and focus. And yeah. I mean, not that you'll ever know this, but it's a bit like being pregnant. You become very focused on the fact that you're pregnant and then you have the baby and you're like, oh yeah, God, now I've got to mind this baby. You know, <laughs> and we did IVF for our babies as well. So it was sort of, you know, there was a sort of previous bit being very focused on getting pregnant. And then you're like, oh God, now I'm pregnant. Shit. <laughs> I've that bit of it, you know. Like success was getting pregnant and then you've got the nine months of pregnancy and then you've got the the baby you know wow. so it's a bit like that you know and then also i've never done this before and it turns out that your publisher expects you to be doing lots afterwards so mm. i'm used to a world in which you file your article you know yes editors are in intensely annoying and i'm intensely annoying to correspondence and that's the way it is but anyway once the piece comes out you never think about it again really yeah. it's gone whereas now this is not gone no, this is like you this you isn't a piece this is a work yeah, it's a work, but it's also an ongoing, like, you know, uh, momentum building sort of thing is the expression people are using. Yeah. So, yeah. fine. Okay. It's like, I didn't know that was the way it was going to be. So. Well, there's what you're doing with all these chats that you're having and uh, publicity things. And I'm sure your wrist has ingrained your signature on a <laughs> cartilage level into itself at this point. I wish. I keep forgetting how to do it. <laughs> I put the pen to it and I'm like, which... <laughs> I'm terrified I'm going to scribble all over the front of them. <laughs> um, but there's also the impact of it. right? Yeah. There, there's what you're doing, which is making the wave, but there's also the ripples and the riptides and what's coming back to you. And So having started so negatively by saying, you know, I feel a bit flat, actually that is exciting. So I am hearing nice things. You know, I am hearing people coming back to me and saying, oh, such and such important person has read it and thinks it's very, you know, very important. 
Um, mostly very nice things. I mean, there's all the crap, you know, which I expected there to be, because as I wrote about in the book, if you dare to talk about this, people will slander you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just what I expected. Um, I got some advice from people like Mike Bailey before uh, the book came out. Um, not that there's much they can tell you, really, you know. Anonymous people can make up lies about you, and there's a lot of bad faith out there. But actually, the things that I've heard in person and the things from people who've got in touch with me have overwhelmingly been positive. So mm-hmm. that's been nice. How do you, and this is general question, uh, how do you sort through the bad faith criticism and the criticism that you're like, oh, okay, that's valid, even though you're oh, being really nasty about it? This is something. Honestly, it's really not hard. The bad faith is so staggeringly bad faith. Okay. Like, there was one that was criticising me. Um, do you know the saying, like, ignore everything before the but? Have you heard that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that ruins leader writing, by the way, if you ever have to do editorial writing. Because the way they go is, here's this stuff, and this is what's happening, and these people are saying this, and these people are saying that, but... And honestly, it's ignore everything before the but, but you've got to write it. Anyway, there's someone who quoted me saying, um, you know, trans people deserve rights, dignity, and so on, but... And they quoted just that and said, you know, if you have to say but after that, you don't mean any of it. But the rest of the sentence was, but that is not what the, what trans activists are asking for. Okay. So they know that. You know, okay. The person reading it doesn't know how selective that quote is, but the person who selected the quote does. Yeah. So there's a lot of that sort of bad faith and malice out there. And then there's people who have got legitimate, you know, why didn't you include this? Oh, yeah, maybe I should have... Um, you know, why didn't you, you know, use sex-based pronouns instead of gender-based pronouns? I can see why you're asking that. Here's my reason, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a night and day between the sort of, you know, lying about me and calling me a racist and so on mm-hmm. and telling me that I didn't give enough dues to particular figures, which is probably correct. Yeah. It's, I guess it's it's way too early because, again, it's a work. It's not an article. It doesn't disappear. It's on a shelf. It'll go through. And then it's coming into America, too, which is another whole market. We'll see what happens there and what the different book uh, clubs and sellers will be doing to themselves. Do you know if I they couldn't share. find an American publisher? It's not an American edition. It's the British okay. edition being distributed in America Okay. because no, British, no American publisher picked it up. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. They don't so want to have isn't to that, isn't that the... interesting? Quite a lot of them said this would sell very well, but we don't dare. Really? Yep. Huh. Yep. So there, there's forces other than the market at play, which oh, you, time. you point to in this book. Yeah. Yeah. But I knew that. I mean, you know, some of the people who turned it down, because I mean, the publisher in England certainly wasn't the first that I approached uh, and the agent wasn't either. Um, you know, some of the other, some of the people I approached did think it wouldn't sell. Like I have one guy who said, "If we are going to torch our woke credentials, we would like to do it for a book that has some chance of selling." Yes. Well, I'm number four in the nonfiction list this week, and it's fifth week out. So, you know, fuck yeah. you. <laughs> Sorry to be so rude, but that is how I feel about it. But there's other people who said this really could do well, but I just don't dare the argument internally. You know, I can't face down our woke young colleagues. Yeah. So I knew well, that was an issue. We have precedent with Abigail Schreier and Deborah So and uh, Kathleen Stock's book hasn't hit America yet. No, and she got a publishing deal in America. A publisher oh, really? did pick it up. Yep. Okay. Uh, because so hers is more, more about females than about the trans issue? I, I, think, I don't know. I, I mean, of course, I think she's great and her book is great. So I'm just joking when I say this. It seems that I'm so toxic that I've made her more acceptable. 
<laughs> I said this to her in person. So, I mean, I am just joking, but it is funny. There was a joint review of the two in The Guardian, which had studiously ignored her book for the three months that it was out before mine. Really? And they managed to say, you know, if you're going to read one of these, read Stocks. <laughs> because so I said, I moved the Overton window to include you. Wow, interesting. <laughs> what, what do you think about this? I don't know what to call it, like this council of Chiron or something like that. The, the, these women authors that are stepping onto the world stage. It's you, you all have different points of view. You're all differently connected to historical feminism and to different uh, you know, liberal conservative, uh, uh, you know, the bandwidth of that stuff. But there's something similar to all of you. You're all very powerful. What do you, do you have a sense of, of this kind of emergent movement that's going on? I, I think it, I think, just what we should have expected years ago really i mean if you think of anything at all there are books written about it you know i, I work in a, a paper where we get a lot of books um for review that we don't review like hundreds a week and they're put into a cupboard where you know people can take them if they want and they, they get sent to a charity if they're not going to get reviewed and i always remember picking one up that sounded really interesting because i'm into the doors and it was called lizard king and i thought oh would that be something about jim morrison it was actually a book about people who smuggle lizards <laughs> and I always remember that when I think there are books about absolutely blooming everything. <laughs> but do you so, think yeah, that, like, so, there's so, like 12 people that are writing about lizard smuggling at the same time? Possibly only one, but I mean, that's lizard smuggling. Yeah. You know, we're talking about an attempt to redefine humanity. Yes. Uh, you know, and ignore the fact that we're mammals and set us apart in a way that hasn't happened, you know, since before Darwin. So, you know, having five people who want to say something about this isn't exactly a lot. Yeah. But it's just, that, I mean, you know, a catchphrase I've tried to use a few times recently with journalists is just cover this the way you would cover anything else. Just do your research, talk to your people, don't be cowed out of asking questions by people saying that it's, you know, transphobic or bigoted even to ask the question, and just do it the same way that you would do, you know, Xinjiang or Israel-Palestine or, you know, the rainforest or any other really difficult topic. You know, journalists talk about anything and everything. Just do it like that. Okay. So when you look at it that way, there should be dozens or hundreds of books about this. Yeah. I hope there'll be lots more. I'm told that I've been told by um, another author here that her book kind of the publisher said, let's wait and see how Kathleen's and Helen's books right. do before I decided okay. to pick this up. Okay. Because if, if it does well enough, then then you overcome some internal resistance. Yeah. And also we've maybe kind of respectabilized it a bit. How so? Oh, just what? by being out there, just by being reviewed, you know, having serious people review it, being in the bestseller list. Like, it just becomes harder to say that this is the, you know, the famous Schrodinger's turf, you know, simultaneously a tiny minority and enormously powerful. Yeah. So, you, you know, it just becomes another thing that people can write and talk about. And that's yeah. my aim, really. Yeah. It, this book, well, incredibly well put together. I, I just, I'm, I'm an, well, I'm, I'm a fledgling author entirely so i'm always amazed that people can construct something so oh so am i when i look back at it i think how the hell did i do that and i have to tell you one of the secrets and that's an editor oh okay the, the right editor the first draft was nothing like as good so okay. shout out to cecilia okay so uh, the editing process was it um just kind of whipping you whipping the sentences whipping the paragraphs, saying where's the no. argument here what's what are you trying to say or is it cleaning up no i mean not not to boast but i'm able to write sentences and paragraphs Okay. It was, you know, putting things in the right order uh, okay. that it was the issue. So I had done, as I'm sure you have, if you've, if you, have you done a book proposal? Have you done a detailed book proposal? No, I just write the books and then I shelve them and write another one. 
Okay. All right. If you actually want to get them published, they want a detailed book proposal. You probably know this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, especially yeah. nonfiction. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what fiction's like at all, and I've no ambitions whatsoever to write fiction. Um, but what you do for a nonfiction book is you, um, you know, another author very kindly shared me her um, her book proposal, so I knew what to do. You've got this sort of pages of you know boasting about yourself and why you're the right person to write this and what else you've done and why it's a book that's worth writing and what the market is and who you see yourself as like and then you do a sample chapter or so and then you also say what will be in each chapter and what you'll do for it like who you'll interview where you'll go that sort of thing so that took me two months just to do the outline just to do that Uh, and then i really wrote it to the outline but as i find you know even with a short article as you write it uh, you know, you need some things need to grow and other things need to shrink and two things that you thought were different things are actually the same thing. And then you realize you've left something else. And this, the complication with this one, especially, is that lots of things have to come before other things. Like, you know, it's hard to explain what one aspect of gender dysphoria is without another bit. Or it's hard to say what the history means unless you, you know, so, so to some extent, there was a very forced structure. And that was where Cecilia hugely, hugely helped. You know, she said, start with the history and, you know, the idea. And then you're going to do women, you're going to do children, and no children, then women, then um, public policy. And it was basically three chapters of each of those. And that was the 12 chapters plus the conclusion. And that worked really well. But it did involve, you know, there are people who are, in a way, both children and women, namely the detransitioners. So you have to decide where to put them and you have to put them somewhere and then kind of or hold off doing them and say you're going to do them later. That's Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so she helped hugely with that. And then the other thing was that she just kept making me be more measured, uh, more, you know, less emotional. You know, I felt very strongly and I I still feel very strongly that, you know, there are people who are being silenced in particular, people who've been harmed a lot by this um, ideology, you know, detransitioners, some people who still count themselves as trans, but who feel that they were lied to about what that means and what their transition could give them. And then parents, who were looking for help and got anything but help and you want to express what those people feel and you know in any other subject you would well you don't want to emote onto the page you know but you go for something like Wordsworth's emotion recollected in tranquility and yet Cecilia just kept saying you know all right no more use of the word mutilated no more use of the word sterilized cut down the prisons you know etc etc we always did a budget for these things because she said again and again, and she was right, of course, you're not writing for the people who agree with you. You're writing for the people who either don't know anything about it or think they mean the opposite direction. Yeah. I'm, uh, what stands out most to me in the book are there's just these formulations that are embedded and you're going through this data and you're, you're doing these anecdotes or just stories and stuff. And then you approach the argument and you crystallize these things in, into an argument. You say, especially about when you're you know, arguing about the definition of woman and you go back and you bring back those ideas and you say, well, if this, then that, or if this, then that. And that is what I think is forwards most not just people's understanding of this issue but your thinking in the issue um i didn't really feel a lot of emotion um yeah i mean uh, david aronovich wrote a review about it in the in the uh, times the british times and it was a lovely review but in it he said if there if there is a fault you know maybe she's too angry and a lot oh my god you know the way when you say one thing out of line people just pile on you he got 
dozens of absolutely furious women saying, we have every right to be angry, this is infuriating, you know. And, uh, I, I mean, you know, there's two things to say about that. One is, you have to say something negative in a review. You can't just go. You have to say something. And then the next sentence was... But anyway, I can, you know, perhaps she's every right to be and perhaps she wouldn't have done it without that anger. Yeah. So come on, read the two sentences together, for goodness sake. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I did message him and say, um, you know, if you think that's angry, you should have seen the things that I left out. And he replied something like, you know, yes, I can totally imagine. <laughs> I did guess as I was reading it, you know. So that was a lovely review. That was the nicest of the reviews because that was the one where he said, um, yeah, I think when he tweeted it, he said, testicle haver gets off the fence. <laughs> women women exist you know? <laughs> and that was the aim that some testicle havers would get off the damn fence mm, mm-hmm. when what, what, what was something that so you have this big structure and you're going through and you're figuring out these things you're filling in the gaps and, and you're trying to balance everything to your and your editor's specifications was something that really surprised you that you had no idea or something that really challenged you <laughs> I mean, let me think. What did I find most surprising? I mean, I find the whole thing still endlessly surprising, which makes it difficult to answer that because I'm still constantly astounded by the things that people do and say. keep on peeking. I keep on peeking. I mean, there's just no, there's no peak here, you know. Um, It was, I tell you where I really got shivers down my spine was when I went down the rabbit hole of reading about... um, factitious and doctor created like iatrogenic um, mental illness so the history for 200 years of doctors shaping or the medical profession generally so not just doctors counselors nurses anyone the whole medical profession has really only existed in anything like a modern form for 200 years like before that basically you know there was some local wisdom which might or might not actually be wise Mm-hmm. And you just did what you could. But after that, doctors started to have theories. And once doctors had theories, that shaped the way that people felt about their illnesses. Because loads of illness isn't just the sort of factual matter of there's a tumour growing or, you know, your lungs don't work properly in cystic fibrosis. It's, you know, it's disease of different sorts. And this is absolutely not saying it's not real. It's real. It's really real. Like People get paralysed. They get sick and die. They can't eat. They, you know all sorts, you know, they've constant pain, I mean, all these symptoms, but they're shaped by the medical, by the therapeutic relationship. Like when you go in and you say to your doctor, you know, I have this constant feeling that I can't breathe or, you know, my, my heart is palpitating or whatever. The doctor has ideas about what that means you have. And the two of you together shape it until, without intending to, your disease fits into a known category. And of course, those categories have changed over time and they are different in different places. And, you know, it's my contention that a lot of gender dysphoria, we're creating it, like we're creating it in the culture, but we're also doctors are playing a huge role in creating it. They're saying that these sorts of disease that people have in their bodies are to do with something called their gender or a mismatched gender identity. So people who might otherwise have just understood themselves to be, you know, teenage or highly nonconforming or indeed have taken other very destructive things like eating disorders or self-harming they now understand themselves to be gender dysphoric and that makes them gender dysphoric because you know if you anything you start to focus on if you try it if you start to think about you know how your stomach is feeling or how your head is feeling or how your breathing is going you can quite quickly make it feel quite disordered you start to notice that things are hurting they start to hurt you know so if you start to examine all day every day your gender like what is your gender identity what is your gender journey do this gender self-examination you give yourself gender dysphoria 
And then you go and you visit a doctor and they say you're trans. That means that you have a mismatched gender identity. These things don't change. You need to go down this path. You know, the medical profession is making this. And so to come back to your question about what surprised me, they do this again and again. They've created so many illnesses, so many, you know, tens of, or hundreds of thousands of people have believed themselves you know, to have multiple personalities or to have been abused in childhood with no evidence and indeed strong evidence that they weren't and made very, very sick and in ways that you can't then heal. That once you've convinced somebody that they're a splintered personality, you've done very great harm. It's not that you can come back and say, oh, we were wrong about that. You've messed someone up big time. And if you go back even, you know, if you go back further, you see Charcot and hysteria and before that, the reef, no, it was before that, I think it was after that, it was reflex theory. And there were some bits where I read sentences and I actually got that cold shivers all over me when I realised that doctors in particular have been attacking women's reproductive systems because of mental illnesses for a long time. Like there seems to be this thing in doctors where if a woman comes in and says, I don't feel right, I don't fit in, I'm constantly miserable, I don't feel like anyone else, you know, these sorts of things, they go, hmm, you know, I wonder, could that be your ovaries? And I mean, they're not saying those words now, but the treatment brings you that way. They're cutting out people's reproductive systems because those people say that they're not at ease. <laughs> and you realise the madness of it when you remember that their very own ideology says that you don't need to do anything to your body. You know, if I just declare myself to be a man, I am now a man, I always was a man, I don't need to do some transition. Saying I need to do some transition will be disrespecting my gender identity, it would be, um, you know, saying that I hadn't always been a man and I needed to do something to gain that status. And yet they're still saying to teenage girls, down this path you go and become sterilized. That argument of, um, I guess that's more of a NB or a, a non-binary argument or a pure genderist formulation. I think that's kind of new in the culture. I don't think that's that's crashed into the physicality of doctors or the Oh, I don't know. I think the thing no. is, you know, you and I, I think the first time we talked, um I, I went off on one on the subject of mathematics and how zero equals one wrecks everything. You know, once you bring in one illogicality into a system, you screw everything else up. So once you say that what makes somebody a man or a woman is how they feel, inexorably that brings you to the point where, you know, if you say you're all sitting there as you are with your beard and, you know, your broken voice and, you know, frankly, hey, very obvious I have masculinity. A, I have a pink shirt on, at least. Yeah, well, you know, I'm going He's to pretend right. I didn't. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. It's so embarrassing. I didn't call you angry, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, you inexorably get there. It's just that it took them some time. Like, they thought they were talking about people who needed to change their bodies, but what they were saying was you don't need to change your body. And now we've reached the point that the full, um, let us say, outworkings, because I don't want to say logic, of the position are front and centre. We've arrived there. We've arrived at peak trends in terms of what it means. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a really interesting uh, phenomena that YouTube places HRT hormone advertisements on my on my videos, uh, even though I'm... Uh, I, you know, I, I try to be fair, but my content's de definitely skeptical of gender ideology. I'm pretty open about that. So it's interesting to have that, you know, that direct contrast of here's this medical intervention. Yeah. We'll give yeah. you what you want. We'll give you what you want. And I'm like, let's think about what you want. What do you want? 
Yeah, and it's such an American attitude as well to healthcare. I mean, it's spreading because everything American spreads, you know, sometimes fortunately and sometimes unfortunately. But that is just not... Yeah, well, you're you're patient zero in so many things, good and bad. This is not not me knocking America. It's just a fact. You're the cultural super, uh, you know, the cultural superpower, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not the way I was brought up to think of healthcare that it was a consumer good in any any sense. Mm-hmm. Like you went to the doctor if you needed to be fixed for something seriously major because you know I'm one of nine kids and you have to pay to see the doctor. So, you know, if it could if, if it could possibly wait a bit, you waited. But absolutely not. You didn't expect the doctor to do what you thought you, the doctor should do. You were going to the doctor to be told what needed to be did, done. Yeah. And obviously yeah. that has its downsides too. Now, I'm not saying that's perfect, but at least you aren't going along and saying, you know, I'd like a forked tongue or, you know. Um, uh, you should look into those communities because that's how. I have a bit. And honestly, you know, <sighs> there were so many things that if I put them in the book, people would think I'd made them up, as you know. Yeah, because yeah, that's, why, that's why. That's why. That's why Evergreen is all found footage. It's. I'm not telling you the story. I'm showing you the story because nobody would believe me if I'm like, this is what happened in my college. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons it's all got so far because you sound like you're the crazy person. You know, if you say, "Did you know they're putting rapists in women's jails?" Like not just rapists, like mass rapists. Like you know that this Canadian guy, you know, who um, who you know raped a three-month-old baby so seriously that the child needed major reconstructive surgery. They moved him to a women's prison where there's a mother and baby unit. People think that literally could not have happened. So she has to be making it up. Like they think it's in for that. It happened. I can tell you the guy's name. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just one of a thousand examples. Yeah. Well, on on the positive side, um, when did you start to get into this issue? Like what year? Twenty seventeen was, was where I first discovered that it was an issue, but I didn't know what to think for about a year after that. Okay, I was fretting away at it, and twenty eighteen was when I suddenly went, "Whoa, seriously? They mean that I, a heterosexual woman, have to find you know another, in my opinion, heterosexual woman attractive if that heterosexual woman declares herself to be, you know, a man." Sorry, another yeah. woman, not as matter what sex, you know, what her sexuality is. Um, and it's like, no, 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 you're kidding. You, you know, it, it's that, that Karen thingy, Karen Davis, as she says, you're kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just kept going, you're kidding, right? Yeah. And they weren't kidding. And once in you realize a, they're not kidding. Yeah. In a podcast uh, recently with Brett Weinstein and uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, Peterson uh, starts talking about there's all these arguments that we have to make now that we never thought we had to make. Such oh, as God Almighty, I know. man and woman. So, w- with regards to that, how have you had to construct the idea of the woman, or did you already have a theory in place? Can I just can I just have a short rant on the subject of saying things that nobody should have to say first before yeah. we talk about the specific yeah. of woman? I mean, my God Almighty, you know, I have a PhD in maths. I'm the Britain editor of the Economist. Never, ever, 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 ever did I think I would have to explain to people, for example, that men are stronger than women. I mean, seriously, nobody's bothered to produce a, an evidence base, you know, specifically for this because it's damn obvious, for goodness sake. Yeah. Or that sex isn't a spectrum. God's sake, you know. So the only way that I've managed, I mean, in some ways it's been interesting. Like, it was actually very interesting learning all that stuff about sports physiology. Yeah. A bit less interesting learning all that stuff about, you know, Hanfausto Sterling and nonsense about five sexes and things. 
And in another way, you know, it's so ridiculous. It's such a waste of time. And there's a, there's a wonderful quote by Toni Morrison about the point of racism, which is the point of racism is to waste your time and your energy. Like, you know, racists make you keep saying, you know, we are as good as you. No, we're not stupid. No, we're not not deserving of this. You know, and you keep having to give arguments. And then, you know, it's like those arguments evaporate and you have to make them again. Mm-hmm. So instead of actually forming a powerful community that can rise up and demand what it wants, you're having the most ridiculous arguments about basic things that nobody should need to argue about. So there's a lot of waste of time in that, and that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know, all these women who are trying to explain yet again that just because clownfish are sequential hermaphrodites doesn't actually mean that men can become women. It's completely absurd. Why am I having to say this sentence? You know, we all know why I have to say this sentence, but it's still absurd. So, so that was frustrating. I just had to try to take a black humour out of it. You know, I don't think that you should have to define woman or man any way other than Darwin. Now, this is not me in agreement with most of the feminists that I'm generally in agreement with. But I think one of the problems with feminism is that it doesn't read enough about standard mainstream science. Like most feminists don't know enough about evolutionary biology. They just don't. I mean, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. I forget who said that, but it's about 40 years old, that saying. And nothing, nothing about our bodies makes sense. Not one thing about them, unless you remember evolution. And Darwin answered what the sexes were. They were reproductive um, strategies and the developmental pathways towards those reproductive strategies. And there are only two in mammals. End of story. That's what sex means. And, you know, OK, you can mess around with the words man and woman if you want, but I've become increasingly convinced that you can't actually do it in a consistent or meaningful way that isn't entirely to do with stereotypes. I did expect in the book, in my proposal, I thought that I would have to demolish some of the absolutely terrible arguments for why some men are women and some women are men. Like they're all just so bad. They rely on terrible analogies with, you know, citizenship or adoption or, or just, you know, like that it's like a an emotional association and uh, identification with or something. I don't have to any emotional association or identification with. But basically, I just realised that any of these attempts to put the idea that some people can identify as the opposite sex on a firm footing all leave out some of the people who are uncomplicatedly of that sex. So, you know, if you want to say, oh, the people who identify firmly with and associate with all these aspects of, you know, the feminine, the female situation, you know, oppression, this position, the patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. What about Queen Elizabeth? You know, what about me with my nice job and, you know, my PhD in mathematics and my general feeling of not being wildly oppressed? You know, am I a woman then? I haven't been cast out of womanhood by this stupid definition. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I ended up thinking this is too stupid. I'm not bloody you know, giving it house room in my book. So, so I and just so, said, and all fail. An enormous amount of research went into those three words, and all fail. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's just not the, you know, I I got into this topic, and there's just it goes on and on and on and on and on, and I I I'm not done with the topic because there's so many things that I haven't asked, and so many people's experience that I haven't. Um, subjected myself to. Uh, but when I have a hard time reducing male and female just to the uh, you know, producer of this and the producer of that, because the consequences of gestating the egg and all of the resources that you need to do that, etc., it all, it builds up into a social, there, it edges yeah, into social stuff. So yeah. there's all, no, all I, this I Darwinism that's bleeding into our cultural moment. And 
and to dismiss stereotypes out of hand is to miss an opportunity to understand why those stereotypes arise over and over and over again. What makes st those stereotypes true? Not necessarily as prescriptions of what a person should be, but descriptions of typical behavior that you're going to see happen. And it just, it happens over and over again. Women tend to be this way. And in a group, they, they exhibit very strong certain forms of behavior and men towards this way. And in a group, they, they uh, establish that kind of... I don't disagree with any of that. I, I really don't. I just don't think it's the definition. Okay. So, you know, it, you know, in mathematics, you would define what a prime number is and the definition is short and sweet. Okay. And the definition is over, you know, and then you have these immensely complex theorems that tell you things that are true about prime numbers or indeed all numbers in terms of primes or whatever. Those things don't define prime numbers. Okay. And it'd be a mistake to say that something else that had those properties was thereby prime. That might or might not be the case. It would depend whether those properties were things that only primes had. So I'm just talking about the definition. I completely agree with you that those definitions are profoundly consequential. And in fact, that's one of the things that gets criticized in the book that I say that up front. You know, I, I, I just didn't, you know, I don't want to devote any time to these different definitions of male and female, like cluster definitions of things, because I just think they're all pointless. That's not what it means. Okay. You know, that's like saying prime numbers are numbers like 7 and 11 and, you know, 37 or something. No, there's a definition. So Done. But that definition has huge consequences, and I say that, like has you know, profound consequences that we ignore at our peril and have been ignoring for at least half a century and more, um, for how people flourish, how what makes them happy, how we should organise our society. And those consequences are worse for women than men because men are the default human. You know, the, the world, as in outside the home, was largely built to suit men and a particular atomized version of men too. Mm -hmm. And you know, some women are able to slot into that at some cost to themselves usually. Lots of women aren't. And so there's so much work that needs to continue to be done to say how are humans to flourish, given that we are sexually dimorphic and mm -hmm. that is that makes males and females rather different. But then I get criticized by people for saying, you know, this makes us different. This has profound consequences for our happiness or health or well-being or interests or emotions. It bloody does. But anyway, some people don't like to hear that, including people that I generally regard as very nice people. Well, in the context of feminism or in the context of working specifically for women's rights and uh, all that that entails, you need to have a, constru a whole more holistic construct of the woman, not just as somebody who produces the eggs, but somebody who um, goes through a, a period of pubescence that's unique, a, a period of fertility that's unique, and then a period of senescence especially on the so, so all of those things that's are all because, are together yeah they're because yeah. they're all they all flow from that initial definition the definition definitions should be as parsimonious as possible like you don't add things and you state them in the minimal terms okay. you know so prime number is a number that has just itself and one as its divisors you don't say anything else because that's it that's the whole definition so it doesn't mean that's the only thing that prime numbers are you know, it's just the unique thing. It's the thing that separates prime numbers from other numbers. So yeah. it, you know, it's not like I could take you, the person that you are, you know, your physique, your life history, your course, your interests and so on, and somehow change your reproductive system to turn it into the other reproductive system and then say you're a woman. I mean, A, we can't do that. We are nowhere near that scientifically. But also everything about you right down to the cellular level is predicated on you being on that developmental pathway, not that developmental pathway. So you are many, many, many things other than, you know, 
a testicle haver. (laughs) You'll be glad to know. It's absolutely not reductionist. People hear it as reductionist, but that's the definition. Definitions should be parsimonious. You don't load things onto them that are extraneous. You drill down to just the only thing you need to say. Yeah. to say whether a thing is in the group or not in the group. And then you can work forward and you can say, well, what does that imply? Like doing a theorem in maths. Like, what does it imply about women that we are the, the, the gestators? God, it implies loads of things. It implies everything. You know, not right. everything, but loads of things at every stage in our lives, including the ones that you said. Yeah. And many others too. It, it, it includes things about, you know, oh, random things like... Um, you know, that we're probably less risk-taking, that um, we are, we, we feel disgust more strongly than men at, at things. You know, there's, there's probably thousands or tens of thousands of outworkings of that simple starting definition. Mm-hmm. But the definition is simple. Yeah. Well, yeah, so there's, I guess there's two places then that uh, that I'm trying to work with. So I'm not concerned with def- uh, defending the definition of woman, which is what your book is kind of about, because this is basically destroying. It's one of the things it's about, yeah. It, 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 but all the consequences yeah. from that, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm curious to what degree you've um, kind of come into your womanhood or uh, <laughs> thought about what it is to be a woman because it's been challenged. To what degree is the challenge of womanhood leading to a better understanding of woman. So for me personally, I've always been a heretic privately on this. So, you know, I, I, I've never, I've never subscribed to whatever version of blank slateism mainstream feminism has been okay. um, uh, addicted to for the past several decades. Uh, on a sort of a more general level and in terms of who I've met, the exciting thing, I think, well, one of the many exciting things has been this um, you know, this flowering, if I can say a flowering of black grassroots movement to mix my metaphors here in the UK, at least. And that's been exciting to see people who were not movement feminists, who may or may not have called themselves feminists before. But if they did, they just meant, I think men are as good as women. And, you know, I massively object to arrangements that say otherwise. And, you know, mm-hmm. a few other things like probably caring a lot about uh, violence against women or, you know, unequal treatment in the workplace. So they just mean a sort of pragmatic everyday feminism, not in the sense of that terrible Twitter account, everyday feminist, which is <laughs> largely about things that aren't everyday at all. Anyway, um, so seeing those sorts of women step forward and saying, you know, I'm a mother and that's massively important to me. Yeah. Or, you know, I didn't aspire to be a CEO. So what the hell? You know, I still, you know, maybe people who are going to be CEOs don't care about this. But actually, my sister's a drug addict and she's been in and out of jail. And, you know, I don't like the thought that she's going to be housed with men. Or, you know, my elderly mother, I'm going to have to find a carer for her. I want to be absolutely certain that carer isn't some bloke. That sort of thing. Those ordinary women finding their voice and saying ordinary things that matter to embodied female people. Yeah. And who aren't, aren't very easy to shame on the basis that they're not sufficiently good feminists of the, you know, Judith Butler or whoever the hell hmm. variety. Mm-hmm. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Uh, So 
stepping beyond the trans topic, if if there is that flowering, that grassroots flowering, where do you think it might go? Or what do you think it might do beyond, um, you know, just kind of defending that definition of woman and defending the rights that have been uh, gotten already? What what else is going on that the trans topic is seeping, uh, you know, energy from? Oh, God, so many different directions that could go. I mean, one is free speech, surely. Like, I think it's revealed like nothing else. The tin pot authoritarianism of the approach of, you know, what we might call the woke left. Um, you know, this idea, which I hope I expressed clearly enough in the book, that, you know, the language is the reality. So if you control the language, you control the reality. Mm-hmm. You know, throwing out all the old fashioned and, in my opinion, still absolutely correct arguments for allowing free speech and debate namely that you hear ideas you didn't think of, you get to hone your ideas, you know, there's a plurality of voices, uh, you're less likely to overlook something, all that sort of thing just gets swept aside and instead, you know, you make everybody say what you want them to say and if they won't say that, they have to be silenced. So that's, I think, something that has been put into sharp relief by this. Like, I wouldn't have believed this three years ago. I I was not at all aware of it because I hadn't tried to say something that I wasn't allowed to say. Hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people in America have probably reached that first because I think this happens in the whole race discussion as well. But, but I mean, this just isn't the same level of live discussion in the UK um, because our racial histories are so very different. I mean, obviously, Britain you know, ran an empire and you know, had slaves, but they, they weren't in Britain. So the legacy on Britain's soil of you know, Britain's horrific uh, colonial past Mm-hmm. It just isn't the same as the legacy of America's slavery. Yeah. So we don't have that live discussion in the same way. So it's really this issue that is put in front of everybody. Like, you know, seriously, you're not allowed to say that lesbians don't have penises. You know, seriously, you're going to get kicked off Twitter for saying that Laurel Hubbard was a man until very recently. And, you know, by some definitions, at least, is still a man. And that's 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 been great, that it's highlighted that authoritarian movement against free speech. D- does Britain have the will to resist in the this woke left, so-called? I mean, the left here is very different from in America and much less captured by corporate interests, I would say. I mean, it's very splintered and weak and there's a lot wrong. But we don't have Silicon Valley. We don't have the headquarters of the world's multinationals, all of which are like 100 percent. I mean, they're not even it's not even left. It's Democrat, isn't it? Yeah. So have you come across this wonderful expression, Baptist bootlegger coalition? What? Have you ever heard uh, of this? No, I know, it's Baptist great, isn't it? Bootlegger. A bootlegger, right. So a Baptist bootlegger coalition. The original one was during Prohibition. So Baptists wanted Prohibition because they believed the drinking was wrong, and bootleggers wanted Prohibition because they knew they'd make a load of money from it. So a Baptist bootlegger coalition is where you have a cause that has two very disparate groups supporting it, one of them for moral or intellectual or ideological reasons, and the other for purely uh, base reasons, that basically they'll make a lot more money. And so I read this really interesting article that said wokeism is a Baptist bootlegger coalition. Like you've got all these kids who've come out of university seized with the justice or pretending that there aren't two sexes and but that strangely race is, you know, absolutely baked in and nobody can move out of their race and there's no fluidity there and so on and so forth. You know the sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then you've got corporations that have all sorts of issues with governments like, you know, corporate taxation, you know, supply chain issues. What are we going to do about China? You know, are you going to seriously tell me that I have to, you know, seriously treat disabled people or women or any of those expensive people properly in the workplace? Oh, no, I can just rainbow wash. You know, mm. you tell me that all I need to do is to put a sign on the women's toilets saying that men can come in too. Yay. Mm-hmm. So it's a Baptist bootlegger coalition. And that's much worse in America. 
because you've got the headquarters of all these big multinationals. You've got um, Silicon Valley, which is, you yeah. know, it's both. It's both the Baptist and bootlegger in this. Yeah. Um, and our government and, is and, and, and your government. paid for by that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you've also got the craziest and the worst healthcare lobbyists by a factor too large to compute as well. But there's nowhere else in the world where it's so captured by the supplier healthcare. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't create this. Sometimes people say, and they're completely wrong, there's this sort of conspiracy theory attitude, which is that the healthcare or the pharma lobby actually created transgender issues. And that they did that for nefarious purposes because they want us all to be patients and so on. That's absolutely not correct. Like if you look at the history of it, they were late to notice that this is a great opportunity. But believe me, they are there now. Yeah. And they are marketing all this stuff big time. And the way that it works in America, as you know, is that most healthcare is paid for through insurance plans of some sort. And what our insurance plans offer is usually mandated, you know, either by the state or by the federal government. And so what you do is you lobby the government to add the sort of thing that you want, the treatment that you want to the mandate for what has to be in insurance policies. And then there's just no market pressure whatsoever. You can charge what you like. You can, you know, put everybody on a pathway to some crazy thing. And this is how the opioid crisis worked. You know, pain was seen as a vital sign. Like pain, I think, was described as the fifth vital sign. And the healthcare lobby managed to get that into the way that hospitals and individual clinicians were judged you know, the patients were asked, are you in pain? And, you know, if the answer was yes, they were, the, the patient, the, the hospital or clinician would be marked down and suddenly Wait, you've got millions of Americans. If it's a vital patients. sign, why would you kill it with opioids? Um, I may have remembered the words wrong, but okay. anyway, I think you're going too hard on the logic here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, my I mean, bad. that's just not true here. Like, here they'll go like, you know, eh, it'll be better in a week. Suffer. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Take some ibuprofen. Yeah. So, yeah, so so that was a sort of a lengthy detour into saying that, um, God, what was your question? I've forgotten. I went so I went so off <laughs> off the, the stream of things there. But anyway, why, you know, why this is so much worse in America, I think it probably was. Like, um, I, and I would say back to your original question, which I think was like, what's exciting or where will the outworkings for this go? I do hope that we will see a, um, a return to a more grounded feminism, which I think I don't think we'd wandered too far off it, I have to say here. Like I think a lot, you know, a lot of feminist activists here would still regard themselves as very much focused on issues like violence against women. Mm -hmm. um, but in America, it's become super rarefied. Like, yeah. I, don't know, I don't actually know. I don't know what they're meant to be doing. Most of these Julie feminist groups. Julie Bindel pointed that out. Um, it mm. seemed like her perspective on feminism was more rooted in socialist, uh, pragmatic socialist. Yeah, and I mean, Julie, you know, Julie didn't blow her own trumpet enough on the work that she's done for imp women who were imprisoned, at, you know, for in the end snapping against men who had horrendously abused them. Yeah. Like she's for twenty years, she's been campaigning to get women who were given enormously long sentences for lashing yeah. out against their abusers hmm. uh, out of jail. There was a lovely incident a few years ago when one of the pathetic little woke feminists here, Julie said something about the issue of trans women in women's prisons. And this, this, this child said, you don't care about women in prisons at all. I've just done a Google search on your name and the word prisons. And I mean, Julie actually literally set up the main charity on this issue and has spent the last 20 years working her heart out for it. And yeah. you can see pictures of her with women she got out of jail, you know. So I thought that was a lovely sort of counterpoint of you know like hashtag feminism and mm -hmm. actual you know the issues that affect people who are born in female bodies feminism yeah. so i don't think we wanted off too much but i do think that there's a lot 
um, more that could be done. And I think it's exciting to think that women who wouldn't have bothered to think of themselves as feminists or would have, like myself, said, yeah, I'm a feminist, but that didn't mean anything in terms of what I was doing. Like, you know, now now that there's a threat, you mobilise, isn't there? And then yeah. it's not, you, you make connections and there's all these great groups. And, yeah. and I hope that they will start to think about other things that women need, not just trying to win back ground that's been lost recently, but also thinking seriously, well, you know, it's not enough to keep men out of women's jails. What do women in jail actually need? You know, they're a very neglected group, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that sort of way to, to go on further once yeah. you've won back yeah. your ground. Yeah. And maybe a bit less reality denialism and feminism will be good too. What was uh, the misstep that you saw that um, a certain brand of feminism took that kind of uh, wasted time or destabilized its power? I mean, there's a few, and I'm not the historian of feminism that you'd need to answer that question, really. But it's notable how many people who call themselves feminists quite unwittingly seem to think that if you say women are different from men, you must think that women are inferior to men. Like they think the only way that women can be the equal of men is to be identical to men. And they don't seem to be able to conceive of difference that isn't hierarchy. Hmm. So, or, you know, I, I, think, I think Caroline Criado Perez's book did very well on that on the physical side. Like the whole, her book Invisible Women is really an entire book about statistics about how women are overlooked. You know, so canonical examples are things like when you design products like phones or seatbelts in cars, you know, they're designed to the male standard in ways mm. that are harmful for women. But I think that's true for everything. I think that's true for our societal um, institutions. I think it's true for the way the workplace works, how we think about, um, you know, what makes people happy. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've, we're still acting as if the, the, the role is to get, the, the, the aim is to get women into the places where men are. I mean, I want women to be able to go wherever they want. I mean, I, as, I, as I keep saying, I did a PhD in mathematics. So yeah. that's important that women can go into politics, like a woman's place is wherever a woman wants to be. But what if where women want to be is a bit different from where men want to be? And the only way that this sort of what you might call equalist feminism can conceive of that is if the women are inferior. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so they're, they're giving a backhanded compliment to men and insult to women when they say things like we must get more women into firefighting. You know, what if what if nearly everyone who wants to, you know, climb into a burning building and carry an entire human being over their shoulder and get back out is a man? That's probably true. And I know female firefighters, but probably the majority yeah. of the people who want to do this always are going to be men. Was and your this, but, doctorate uh, program uh, mostly men? Your maths work? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you? Did you really notice that or pay it much mind to be in that? I've always been in mostly male spaces. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I did a maths degree and, you know, The Economist has changed a lot in the 16 years that I've been there, but it's still majority male. And, you know, it's it's not a fusty institution at all, but at some point in the relatively recent past, it was. Um, you know, I talked to politicians and I was a finance editor. I mostly talked to bankers and financiers and so on. So, yeah, no, I've mostly worked in, in male spaces. Um, you can make as much of an issue of it as you want to. Yeah, but was it a big deal to you to be uh, the rare bird, so-called? <laughs> the rare bird. <laughs> what are you, some northern Brit calling me a rare bird? I'm trying <laughs> to appropriate your colonialism. <laughs> All right, geezer. Um I, I, it's hard to answer because I was both aware of it and 
you know, felt that I was in some ways a trailblazer on occasion. And, you know, did you feel like you needed more accommodation? Like you were arguing about? proposing? No, but I mean, I'm old enough that I experienced quite a lot of frank sexism. Okay. Which is that better than the sexism that you describe in this book? Frank says sexism as opposed to the erosion of reality. I mean, the erosion of reality is crazy making. You know, at least when some bloke who's one of your lecturers, you know, calls you darling and tries to buy you a rose in a pub, you know, that's just incredibly embarrassing. But anyone you explain it to is going to understand the guy's a creep. Yeah. Okay. It's not somebody gaslighting you, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's still rubbish. And it still okay. kept women out. Absolutely. Okay. I don't know if that answered your question, but, you know, I, I just sort of feel like when you say, oh, you know, we must get more women into firefighting and you're not saying let's get more men into nursery nursing. There's there's a there's an implied hierarchy here between firefighting and nursery nursing. Yeah. You know, one of them is state, high status and one of them is low status. And that's only because there are things that men and women respectively want to do. You know, I would prefer to see the nursery nursing become equally high status to the firefighting. Yeah. These are both incredibly valuable things to do. And, you know, yeah. So difference without hierarchy. Yeah. So I think there's a brand of, you know, modern hashtag feminism that condemns itself out of its own mouth with every word it says. Mm. It's clear from everything they say that they think that you can only be the equal of a man if you pretend that you are in no way different from a man. And if you say you're different from a man, they, they hear you saying that you think you're inferior, which is why they think that I'm, you know, some sort of trad, trad wife Christian or something. You know, it just couldn't be further from the truth in every respect. <laughs> Wait, why do but, they think that of you? Well, because, because I think that men aren't the same as women, or that women aren't okay. the same as men. Like, I don't think that I'm a smaller, fatter man, you know, who somehow managed to gestate a human being in some nebulous sense that we're not really allowed to talk about anymore. Yeah, yeah, okay. What do you think is going to happen in America when your book comes here? Do you have any, uh, do you have ex- excitement, fear? Do you think it'll just <sighs> be ignored? I'm very philosophical about all of this. Um... I have been all along through it. Like, I know it looks like it was destined to be a success now because things always do afterwards, you know, but I mean, when I decided to write it, I did it for a feeling of moral purpose and not because I thought it would get me anywhere. And, you know, I've said this to my editor, um, you know, I didn't give it 50% that she wouldn't dump me before the book came out. She said, but why? When did I ever give you that impression? I was like, no, you never gave me that impression. That's just the way the industry is. Look at all the people whose books get pulped. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had a plan B, which is a certain small press that had expressed some interest. And I had a plan C, which was that I'd set up my own small press and self-publish and just market it on Twitter, you know. So I was never going, oh, what would it be like if it would be in the top 10? Like, absolutely not. So I don't really have expectations for it in America either. I mean, either good or bad. I just don't know Mm -hmm. what to think. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it could go either way, really, couldn't it? I mean... You know, it could get picked up by someone of the, some of the really big podcasters, and I didn't mean to insult you the last time. Oh, I it's said fine. That. No, I like being a I like being a <laughs> mom and pop shop. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm totally fine with that. But, I don't want to be a wall. Or it might not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's obviously less fertile ground. You know, half the nation already thinks that men can't be women, but they think it for reasons that are somewhat different from mine. Yeah. You know, much more God-given type reasons, or. Um, you know, they start with the stereotypes and they work back from them, which is why I'm so resistant to your question, I realise now, why I'm so resistant to your question about what womanhood means. You know, I'm absolutely tired of being conflated with people who think that you start with the outward appearance and the stereotypes, which, as you say, have a lot of basis in reality and a lot of meaning. They they weren't concocted out of nowhere. 
and we couldn't just have created different, completely different ones. You know, some are trivial, like pink blue. Some are deeply meaningful, like one sex cares a lot more about babies than the other one does. Like, guess why? They've just grown the bloody things for nine months, you know? So, you know, they, they start from those stereotypes, which they seem to think are, you know, absolutely immovable. Like platonic forms of some sort. Yeah, and then they work back from that to say, okay. oh, it's that type of body. So I'm so resistant to being conflated mm. with that because it happens all the time and okay. it's just wrong. You know, I'm starting from first principles and working forward. But yeah, so I mean, half the population, you know, will maybe read it, but maybe not because, you know, I'm godless. And the other <laughs> half are just somehow lost in a weird alternate reality, as far as I can see. Yeah. I mean, Why I don't do know. Think... <sighs> Sorry, you go on. Sorry, you go on. I don't like interrupting my guests. No, your something. questions are always so good. You ask. Okay. Well, I'm... I had a question and I forgot it, so I'm going to go back to a comment I was going to make. I, I was just interviewing Millie Hill. The yeah, other I watched it. It was great. Day. She's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. woman and a writer, wonderful writer. And she's working from a different point of view, too, of trying to go through all these different processes of what it is to be a woman. And we were talking about why not reduce female to gestator? Why not reduce woman to that function? Why not do that? Because there's something lost in being able to communicate all the wealth of knowledge. And even if that comes with stereotypes that you have to struggle against, and some people are more wary or sensitive to stereotypes than others, and maybe that even there's a sex difference and reaction to stereotypes, who, who knows, but there still needs to be a concept that that's human sized, I think. That's human size that will be messy and won't be exact and precise like a prime number, but still communicates everything from one woman to another and and to shares that bond and and just to and then for men to actually start to i think i don't want to say this wrong, but for men to really value women value women in their life to have a concept of woman that they can kind of understand that does have an emotional tenor and has this sense of time and growth and, uh, you know, decay and all that stuff. I think that that is something that will not just defend itself from disambiguation or from ambiguation, but really build up into some something that we can refine and, and the uh, relationship between the sexes, which might kind of spill out into less domestic problems or other problems, more understanding and how to design things and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm just do, arguing I from a novelist point of view to a... And, I, and I've heard you say this one way or another to so many people who are different, you know, who are looking at different aspects of this or taking different bites of it or coming in from different points of view, you know, and I am starting to see what you're saying, because, you know, we are we are very different people with very different interests, and, you know, very different uh, sets of knowledge, you know, and, you know, I like everything clean and I like to start from first principles. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that if you start from first principles you get you can get so far i mean that's the whole exercise of pure mathematics i mean you know, sometimes you need to step right back to see it like imagine imagine we weren't sexually dimorphic imagine or you know, imagine we were creatures that could change sex like crocodiles can or imagine we were um you know hermaphrodites like slugs or we lived in uh, you know social societies of the sort that uh, ants live in or we were a fish that just laid eggs you know scattered sperm and never saw the babies or whatever everything about us will be different everything because the reproductive strategy plays forward like fish don't love their babies because they don't know who their babies are you know 
And that's everything, like not loving your baby and not knowing who your baby are would change everything about our society. So it's not reductionist to say, go back to the first principles. I think if you follow them through, you probably end up in the sort of place that interests you. And, yeah. and that's fine. And I agree with you. And, and then something that I hadn't understood until relatively recently, I don't know if it was you that said it or somebody else said it, I was, I was realising it's less to me about the relationship between the sexes to have some meaningful, you could call it a stereotype, but you might call it an archetype of what the sex is. To me, it's more important about growing up. It's more important about guiding teenagers into adulthood. So you have to have some idea of what in your society it is to be a man or it is to be a woman. And those things can't be unmoored from our biology because they just can't. You know, it still is the females who have the babies and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And But they're much more than that, too. They're ways in which children going through what is often a rite of passage in a lot of societies and a difficult one, too, know what they're aiming for it's the thing that gets you through the tough bits the bits where you you don't you know everything's gangly your legs and arms are too long you're hardly spotty you feel depressed your emotions are up and down you know you're maybe working out whether you're gay or straight like just a million things are happening but you know where you're aiming and if where you're aiming is bad like you know boys aren't allowed to cry or you know it's absolutely verboten to be homosexual and you think you might be Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a horrendous passage to adulthood. But if it's something that's good, that's admirable, realistic, flexible, aspirational, and by realistic, I mean evolutionarily, biologically, emotionally, mentally yeah. realistic, then you've got yeah. somewhere good to aim for. And that carries you through the hard times and it gives everybody yeah. ways to help you and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I think I think that's why it's important to me that we have some idea of what it means, what it's like, in what ways are the sexes different. I, I worry a lot about the fact that we've screwed adolescence up for kids, that we've, we've created, in effect, really horrific rites of passage for children that do what we, we almost do our best to screw children up. You know, they're disembodied. Could you give spending, an example? Well, I mean, all the time they spend on computers, they're disembodied. Yeah. And already you feel alienated from your body when you're a teenager. It's changing so fast and, you know, it's embarrassing and your body maybe grows faster than your brain does. And that means that people, you know, you're six foot three when you're 14 or else you've got enormous breasts when you're 13 or something. You know, it's just awfully embarrassing, the whole thing. And there we're sitting them in front of screens and then we're lying to them about what sex means. You know, just, just completely lying to them about their own feelings. Um, we don't we don't educate them well like education is only really suitable for highly intellectual children there's nothing good for the the more practical types and we've been saying this for decades in the uk and i'm sure in america as well and hasn't been fixed uh, you know no, they're just can, doing away with all that intellectual stuff because it's not panning out the way that they want it to well just different intellectual stuff isn't it i mean intellectual pseudo intellectual but i mean it's not like they're telling everybody how to be a car mechanic and saying that that's a valuable thing to do is it yeah. and then the internet means that you can see the very best at everything on your screen in your bedroom and you think like what's the point of me ever doing anything like that guy's a you know he's got a hundred million record deal and he's 15 or you know i thought i was a good dancer but look at that girl doing 17 pirouettes and she's only 14 you know it's all so difficult for them and we're screwing up the economy and they can't buy a house and you know they have to get 100k in college debt if they want to get any sort of professional job and and, helen joyce what are you doing you're blackpilling my audience now But yeah, no, seriously, haven't we made just, we've made it shit for teenagers. And this is, this gender thing is just one bit of it. And, you know, the idea of who you can become and 
what a man or a woman is, to me, is part of that. How can we turn children into adults in a happy, productive, yeah. well, uh, suitable there's, way? There's a, there's a, there, there's just a long conversation, a deep conversation to have between the radical liberalism of postmodernism that is just destroying all normativity because mm. every normativity is going to leave somebody out. Every normativity is going to oppress somebody or marginalize somebody because you can't have a center without a margin. So we're just going to do away with the whole thing, which it just, it re those things just reemerge just uh, obscured and, and chaotically, but it's all, it's all still there. There's still hierarchies and stuff like and that. And you've also created a lot of cynicism because the kids can see that. Like, just as you're saying, you know, everybody's valuable and, you know, the, all the colours of the rainbow and so on. Kids can see who gets valued. Mm. You know, they can see that the pretty girls get the record deals and, you know, the jocks get whatever, you know, get the girls in school or whatever the hell it is. They know perfectly well who's valued, even as we're saying, you know, everything is as yeah. good as everything else. So we're just yeah. leaving them to work it out on, on their own, which is part yeah. of this we're being absolutely rubbish to children thing. Yeah. And the extreme of that is this trad movement or some sort of reactionary movement that would go back to some weird, like recombobulated 1950s aesthetic. Maybe I don't know where they're trying to head, but there's there's somewhere in between that we want to do. And it's really difficult for us to I think um, it's difficult for me because of my mindset growing up in the 90s, being a Gen Xer of saying, OK, what is the proper man? What is the proper woman? Because if I s define either of those categories, I'm going to upset people um, or I'm going to leave people out, you know? So it's, it's, I, I feel like, how do we get out of the postmodern moment without doing, being some sort of cultural positivism, some culture, some sort of understanding of that uh, on an archetypal level? Um, I just I don't know where we're how we're going to do that, and I and it's certainly up to every parent to do that for their child and and every community to kind of forge that for themselves. But we don't have any of that right now, and yeah. this kind of postmodern stuff it it needs a counterweight somehow. Um, I don't believe. Yeah, in the I, I, how, how does it? How does this end? Where does this go? You know, it's once once you once you introduce a full step to all of your arguments, everything falls apart and everything just keeps playing out differently in different ways and falling apart in different ways. And you end up mm. with complete absurdities and the absurdities get more and more absurd. I mean, Laurel Hubbard was just absurd, like completely. It was the sort of thing nobody would have put in a comedy 10 years ago because it's just too ridiculous. Oh, and the and, way that it ended, too, was a total joke. Oh, the whole thing, the whole thing, you know. I mean... <laughs> No thank you I, was I, the best yeah, thing to come out. Oh my God, that was so good, yeah, yeah. It was a historic night here uh, with Laurel Hubbard competing as the first openly transgender in a uh, in a uh, individual event. And I was wondering you know, what you felt about that and what you felt that, that it took place in, in your sport. No, thank you. But yeah, I've never shown somebody one of these pictures of one of these males on a podium surrounded by women, like in second and third place, like Laurel Hubbard with the Samoan women on either side, or um, Rachel McKinnon with you know these two incredibly fit, lean young women mm -hmm. on either side. I've never shown a picture like that to someone without them laughing. It's always a shock. It, that's the, the shocked reaction that bursts out is laughter, mm. because it's just absurd. 
So, but you're not allowed to say that. Like, it's massively bigoted to say that this is absurd. We're all meant to say that this is like an amazing step for women's rights or some bizarre thing like that, you know? So where does that go? Like, how do you get yourself back from there? You can't go back. You have to go through. Yeah. yeah. And I don't well, know where through brings you. Well, I think what you pointed to uh, beyond feminism would be that free speech issue, which is how I got into this entire discussion. You know, they're taking away our ability to laugh. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. So, it, yeah. so let's go back to laughing at things that we find funny, you know? Yeah. And then which understand is, that laughter has funny. like this cruel uh, edge to it that you have to yeah, be aware cruel, of. You know? You know? <laughs> but I mean, it just, it is funny. There's some bloke yeah. who's wandered in and he's standing on the women's podium. It's bloody funny. Yeah. Some 40 year old I mean, is. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's disgraceful, but it's also funny. So I think re that's related to the idea that journalists just do their journalism, you know? Okay. Like what is that then? Just, what is just, the core go, of that? Just go back to just saying, huh, this thing's happening. I'm going to ask a bunch of people a bunch of stuff. And I'm going to follow the questions where they go. Okay. And then I'm going to do the first draft of history thing. Like, you know, I haven't got time to check everything. I'm not going to worry too much about who I offend, although I don't want to gratuitously offend people. I'm going to remember that the reader matters more than the people I talked to. So I'm going to use plain, straightforward language and make sure people can understand what I'm saying. And then I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I'm not going to be scared off something that's a big story because news is something that somewhere doesn't, someone somewhere doesn't want you to print, you know? Yeah. Like, like that on its own should have brought people into this topic in journalism years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, if we, if we could just try to be more normal about all of these things, like laugh at what's funny, try to use clear words, do proper journalism. And then I would say do proper science and medicine, too. Like it's just extraordinary and disgraceful the extent to which scientific and medical bodies have invented, ignored, distorted, you know, yeah. So, I mean, of course, once you've got credentialing bodies, which fortunately we do not have in journalism, you're oh, at risk. Can you imagine? There are countries where they do. Well, you guys have the BBC. That's kind of somewhat. No, but it's not. No, but I mean, you know, you don't have to be a trained journalist to be at the BBC. You don't. There's no body that says you are or aren't a journalist. The same yeah. way that there's a body that says you are or aren't a psychiatrist or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if the if the American Psychiatric Association says something, a psychiatrist is risking not just their job but their license to practice. Okay. If they disagree with it, that's not true with journalism. You you, you have a reputation, so you might not get published anymore, but you can write all you want. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, there are ways to get the word out there. Okay. Uh, so you know, if journalism wants to destroy itself even more than other forces are by refusing to print what people actually think and writing rubbish, you know, I just. Oh, I don't think I was angry enough about the nonsense that I read in some of the world's greatest newspapers while writing this. I mean, I went as far as quoting one particular piece in the New York Times. <laughs> it was something like, um, world rugby bans transgender women, baffling players. <laughs> and for days afterwards, I kept going, are you baffled to my family and friends? Like, isn't it baffling? Like, imagine they aren't just saying you're a bigot if you don't go along with the idea that this male-bodied person is really is okay to play in women's sports but it's baffling that you might not even notice it it's just this fantasy world where hmm. you know they've gone past making the argument and they just declare the utopia and then yeah, that's that you're not you're not a bigot anymore you're just crazy they're just casting yeah, you out of society problem be i literally don't have any idea what they're worrying about these people huh like the idea that people are baffled about this 
you know, I sent that to people going, you know, are you baffled? <laughs> I just love that word apart from anything else. But seriously, like imagine, imagine that making it into a news item. Like it was a news article that wasn't even an op-ed in the New York Times that play, people all over the world were baffled about the aim to keep male people out of female rugby. I, th- I, this is kind of beyond the wheelhouse that we're talking about now, but I would really like your perspective on this being an international, you know, or working as a part of an international organization and kind of having your eye on a lot more of the world than I and a lot more than just this topic. But what you're just saying about journalism and the APA, the American, uh, you know, Association of you know, um, Psychologists and also the, the publishing industry, too, that, yeah. that just won't touch you. It seems like there is a massive um, kind of instability running through our major institutions. Yes. Yes. What do you think about that? What's your concern? What's your perspective on that? And uh, generally, I, mean, I guess so. I think it depends which institutions you're talking about. I think, and it also depends where you are. Like America's obviously patient zero. Canada got the infection even worse because it hasn't even got Republicans to act as some sort of antibody. Like you know, Canada's like just blue America. You know, with an added unwillingness to ever rock the boat and blimmin' Justin Trudeau. Like, God almighty, what a connection. Oh, what a, what a collection of problems. She, yeah, that, was so, that was so bad. That's one of the cringiest things I've ever watched. And um, you've watched a lot of cringe just to get yeah, through. Yeah, that was just so bad. Uh, anyway, they're going to re-elect him probably. So, you know, yeah, they love yeah. it. They love it. I don't know why. Anyway, so, so America's patient zero and Canada's even worse. And then, you know, you go out from that and you get to like Australia, the UK and so on. And if you go out further, you get to, you know, mainstream Europe and then you go out further again, you get to places where none of this has actually reached yet, like in Asia or wherever. Mm-hmm. And those institutions haven't been captured by this particular problem uh, there. Our inst- a lot of our institutions have been here because the infection came in through universities in this country. So that produced young woke people who went out and they're the sort of people who work in charities and NGOs and government and HR departments. So, you know, it's gone into big institutions now too. So those institutions, some of them now just need to fall. Like the sooner we can get rid of Stonewall, the better. It's not rescuable in my opinion. And that's the opinion of plenty of people who used to support it too. Okay. But then you could, you know, do you have to destroy every university? Well, I think at least here, you know, the science departments are fine. The medical departments are worryingly not... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think engineering is still doing fine. I think in America, psychiatry got, and therapy are gone. Well, they're gone. But yeah. I think again, um, you know, they they tend to go through wild swings as disciplines. Okay, like they were all signed up to also they they were signed up to lobotomies and then they were signed up to you know recovered memories and so these guys are used to being just completely wrong every twenty years. I think <laughs> so. Maybe the institutions can find a way back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but what do you do if you're I don't know, like an education college. I mean, I'd raise them all to the ground. Yeah, especially in this country. That's where the infection is spreading. Yes. Totally. Yes, training all the administrators that come into universities and then, you know, do these... I don't know, we don't have this here. We we don't expect our administrators to tell us how to live our lives or what's Mm. how to be good people or anything like that. There's no courses like that, as far as I know. And if Mm. there are, I'm horrified. There certainly used to be. Like, I did nothing at university except my subject. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. Thanks. So and you're, so are you taking generally a Darwinian stance then? Like things will just f- fall that fail? Oh no, I think we need to attack them, Benjamin. 
Oh, okay. And I think we need to set up new ones. I think uh, I think okay. we need to outcompete some of them. I think you know where institutions are actually obviously not doing the thing they were set up to do. So yeah. charities are not fulfilling their charitable aims. Okay, you know you should do everything you can to to bring them down. And by bringing so them attack down, and replace. Yeah, to the best uh, to the best of our ability, and you know some things won't survive. Like lots of journalism hasn't. And then there's all these new ways of doing journalism, and I have loads of concerns about that. Like, I don't think Substack can replace, you know, a full-service, you know, paper that bundled together foreign news and yeah. business news and, you know, gave you a full set of things for a sort of single low price. But yeah. listen, if those newspapers are going to publish bullshit, like everyone being baffled about the difference between men and women's bodies, the sooner they go, the better. Yeah, okay. So what what's the proper... Um way to attack and you can just use one institution uh as an example or because i've i've heard some rhetoric about you know abolishing schools or peter bogosian just thinks we he's full out war full out war against the institutions what's the proper way in your opinion to go about attacking and uh, leaving the room for something to be replaced i mean again it depends on a legal system in different countries that judicial reviews have been used very effectively here okay um I mean, yeah. so their their requests for senior judges to look at the performance of public bodies and to see that they are fulfilling their stated roles, because our laws are pretty good. So that, that's how Maya Forstatter managed finally to get, you know, it accepted in British law that it is not bigoted to notice there are two types of humans. <laughs> it's a protected belief. I think it's still condescending that it's a belief. <laughs> well, there's two things to say about that. One is that it can't be protected if it's not a belief. But the other one is her belief goes further than that. It's not just that there are two types of bodies. It's that there are two types of bodies, and that's consequential, especially for the female ones. Yeah. So it's a feminist belief. So, yeah, no, it's fine. It, it really is a belief in the in the sense that's meant in, the, in British yeah. law. But, yeah, so we have good laws and judicial reviews, or in her case, an employment tribunal, you know, can can put light, put markers in the sand so that other people can act on them. And um, I think, you know, just setting up grassroots bodies is very effective. Like we have some really waste of space organizations here. I mean, you know, organizations that say that they represent women that never talk about anything that have to do anything with women. And at some point they just become irrelevant. You don't even need to attack them. You just let them wither on the vine. Okay. Like if all the conversation is going on over here and that's where the funds are being raised and that's where people are joining, where people are talking and people are being active and over there, you know, eventually they lose their funding and governments stop talking to them and it doesn't matter if they go on then, they'll just be like, you know, some rotten borough or something. Mm -hmm. um, I personally think that this fight, whatever this fight is, the fight for reality, I suppose, um, will be won in hand-to-hand, -hand, like person-by-person. -person. You know, you have Argumentation, person talking. Age. Okay. Yeah, yeah, people being brave enough to say to friends and family... You know, did you see that crazy thing that happened at the Olympics? Or, you know, have you, did you know that some woman was thrown out of a pub a few days ago in Scotland, you know, simply for just being somebody who is gender critical? Like, she didn't do anything. She was just thrown out or, you know, and then people get enraged and every person who gets enraged is another person on the side of reality. Hmm. And um, just stating the truth is very powerful. As clearly and as clearly as you can. And not and refusing to budge, like this thing I say about acting normally, like just doing your normal work, like you know treating this. I, I've heard this from um, from the medical from medical people who are worried about all this. Like just treat gender dysphoric kids as you would treat anybody else, you know, with compassion on the basis of evidence. Yeah. Uh, you know, first do no harm. All the same principles you use right across the rest of your medical practice. Use it for these kids. Do your journalism the way you would always do your journalism. 
and it when you know when I wrote I tried neither to flinch from subjects because there was things I said that are obviously hugely controversial but I decided I'm not leaving something out just because I think I'm going to get attacked about it but neither am I going to go all shouty and overstated and hyperbolic and so on no just do it the way that I would do anyway there's something to just not budging that is quite powerful not that you have time for anything fun but what do you do for fun (laughs) what do I do for fun I have had so little fun in the last 18 months oh every 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 bit I wasn't working I was just writing the book like wasn't working for the day job um coronavirus has cramped my style a lot too Mm, so you you did a lot of walks and handball is that what (sighs) no handball and fewer walks than i should have um (laughs) what what, i mean i i I read comfort books at the moment there was no Mm. energy to read anything that wasn't to do with the topic as Mm. a lot of people take into calling it so i just reread you know favorite books like detective novels and jane austen which i reread every year and Hmm. um i'm a big knitter i knit and i embroider so Uh, that's what i want i wanted to do i wanted to see what you do with your hands do you have like one that you can like pull down and show or are they too embarrassing (sighs) no it's not embarrassing at all (laughs) this is the sort of thing that i do i'm going to take my headphones out so i will come back that's embroidery or cross stitch i don't know it's um, it's not cross stitch it's a a single stitch as opposed to a crossed stitch so it's called tent stitch i mean thick tapestry i think is what people call it it's really easy it's the most meditative, simple thing because you just get the, you get the fabric, which is very stiff with regular holes. You get it printed, and then you just use match the colours to it. So it's it's very zen. It's like a mon- mandala. Yeah, You're knitting right. is harder, um, and I don't have any of my knitted creations like, anywhere what, here. Like caps or uh, yeah. onesies, stuff Stop. like that. Onesies. What the know. hell is a onesie? A onesie is a, a single piece of clothing for a baby, but sometimes men wear them. Oh, God, do that. That's a horrific thought. Um, yeah, I'd call that a baby grow or a, a baby, baby vest. Grow. Yeah. And yeah, okay. um, No, I do not knit those. Okay. I knit scarves and hats and yeah, what okay. I call jumpers and you probably call sweaters. Oh, jumpers. Okay. And sweaters. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that requires more paying attention. But yes, yeah. I like making things. Nice. What else do I do? Harass my children. <laughs> on the phone or in person? Oh, I mean, one of them lives here and one of them doesn't. I just, I didn't mean harass them. I just meant I like to say to them the reason I had children was to have someone to, to be mean to on hand whenever I wanted. <laughs> Talk about a hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, enjoy my various baby relatives because I'm the eldest of nine kids. So there's 19 at the next generation. So. Oh, geez. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You're the, you're the eldest then. Yeah. Hmm. That yeah, that makes sense. But I yeah, don't know. Three, if three more babies were born during during or after lockdown. So oh wow, there's lots of babies to enjoy. Yeah. 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 Well, there um, you go. That's you, me. <laughs> this book is it's tight. It's a tight book. It's got a lot of punch in it. It's got a lot of information. I think it's going to do a lot. Is If anybody comes across this, it's really easy to read. It's really engaging and stuff. So kudos for constructing this thing. Job Thank well you. done. Thank uh, you. It definitely deserves at least a number two spot uh, on that uh, British list of books. So Let's Let's see. Some big podcaster is what's needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need <laughs> I'm a, gonna keep saying that too. <laughs> a Megan Murphy or a Joe Rogan. Uh, 
Yeah. To, to really. Yeah, Joe Rogan is a, is a law unto himself. Megan Murphy was on Joe Rogan very recently. Yeah, that was fun to watch. she was just on there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. a totally... He's in another... Yeah. He's in another realm. I, I have no pretensions towards. Why are they so long? What? Why are they so long, his episodes? I think he just smokes a lot of weed, and then he just gets into it. Yeah. I think that's his style. Yeah, I'm a bit impatient. But yeah. I didn't say that if he's listening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have another question for you. I've been meaning to ask you this for ages, and it's absolutely not connected to Joe Rogan in any way, but I've been dying to ask you, so I'm going to do it out of time. Why the hell the bodies thing? Like, why is it black bodies or black birthing bodies or white bodies? Where does the bodies thing come from? I, I have no theory on that. You would really... I think James Lindsay probably is, has done the work on figuring that one out, but it... It, it, I think it's just an infectious meme and oh, okay. it's just an infectious meme um, to highlight the oppression. It, it's kind of like this co-opting thing, like the N word or the F word or whatever that is. They're saying we, we, the black body was always treated as, you know, labor or as an object. And so we're reclaiming that. Um, but <laughs> ironically causes them all to lose their sense of individuality and self-responsibility. Quite and insulting. They, yeah. Well, it's insulting. It's insulting, but it also, I, I, it, I see it, especially in high emotional states, it degrades the ability for people to act like humans. They're just forces of nature. They just kind of right, surrender to the, this historical, uh, speaking of evergreen, just they're participating in this historical struggle. They're all symbols. Yes. They're no longer entities. They've, they've achieved like a celestial body kind of status. Right, and they're slotted into this power matrix that we're all meant to be completely part yeah. of. Right? Okay, okay, you slot bodies into, ma into the matrix. I get yeah. it, I think. I've been there, trying to ask you that for ages. Are there is there trans bodies rhetoric? I'm sure there is. Female bodies. That, that's different than yes, what we the were trans about. body. They would say like things are projected onto the trans body. Like the trans yeah. body is a site of something, probably oppression. Like people like me, I presume, are meant to project whatever nasty things you know, motivate <laughs> us onto trans bodies. <laughs> so dangerous, Ellen Joyce. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, parting shot, um, I was thinking that if you were less high-powered and I was more high-powered, we'd probably have a podcast called Boy Joy Pod or something like that. <laughs> Fine, as long as it's Joy, Poy, Joy Boy Pod. You'd want a Joy Boy Pod? I think that would work, too. It, can, it sounds like a, some British boy band. Or it's an bad. 80s band. Like, it's it's like bad. Boy George, Boy Boy, Joy. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, no, this isn't good. No, it wouldn't. It's not, not it wouldn't. There's a there's an alter, uh, alternate reality. I'm sure it's happening as we speak. Oh, well, thank, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you. It is excellent. Um, keep it up, and I I hope that America embosoms you with. Uh, <laughs> that sounds startling. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go for embrace, shall I? Okay, yeah. all right, whatever. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Benjamin. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.